You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fifth episode of season seven. I hope you had a chance to listen to last week's episode. It focused on the life and crimes of Colin Campbell. Before we get into this week's episode, let's break the ice. As I mentioned last week, I've run out of daddy facts. The cards have all gone from that pack. Having said that, I'm introducing two new icebreaker segments. The first one is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. (laughs) That was (laughs) true facts that sound like bullshit. For the record, when I recorded that with my daughter, I didn't actually get her to say bullshit. She said bullshit and I just edited it for all the cautious parents out there. Here is this week's true fact. Did you know that kangaroos perform adoptions? Kangaroos have been known to accidentally abandon their young only to have them raised by other kangaroos. Sometimes they even voluntarily swap their offspring. The second icebreaker segment that I'm introducing this week sounds like this. Random quote of the day. A pretty simple one, a random quote of the day. Here is the quote. Many of life's failures are people who did not realise how close they were to success when they gave up. That's a quote from the American inventor and businessman Thomas Edison. He actually didn't invent the light bulb, by the way, despite what people believe. Look it up. This week's case was suggested via Instagram by listener Tracy Johnson. The location I picked for this week's facts is the market town of Sedgefield in County Durham, and you'll find out why as the story progresses. Here are five quickfire facts about Sedgefield. Number one. The Sedgefield Medieval Fair is held every May at the historic Village Green and has been since 1970. Number two, the Sedgefield Ball Game is played every Shrove Tuesday. It's a game of mob football. Number three, the Manor House is an early 18th century mansion in Sedgefield that was originally built for Robert Wright, judge of the Common Pleas in the northeast of England. Number four, the Church of St Edmund is a Grade 1 listed building and dates to the 13th century. It's located at Cross Hill in Sedgefield. And number five, horse racing has been taking place at Sedgefield since at least 1732. Sedgefield Racecourse is a regional thoroughbred horse racing venue. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Sedgefield was 5,211. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Researching this episode frustrated me because of the number of times our villain got away with committing awful crimes. He was even given the tools to create several fake online profiles to enable him to speak with young girls, many of whom he tried to meet and one of whom he would murder. If you don't allow your kids to use social media, or if you do but are cautious of the risks, please listen very carefully to this episode. It'll scare you and piss you off, but my aim will be achieved if it raises awareness about the dangers of online predators. This is an awful story that needs telling in the hope it prevents anything like it from happening again. Our villain this week is named Peter Chapman and he was born in January 1977. Peter was a strange child from the start and was brought up by his grandparents in the market town of Stockton-on-Tees in County Durham, that's in North East England. 
Why he was raised by his grandparents rather than his parents is unknown, but fellow pupils at the school Peter attended recalled how he was always seemingly the odd one out. Peter was a stereotypical loner who required glasses from a young age and had a hairline that would begin receding far earlier than he would have liked. He struggled to make friends and those who gave him a chance were eventually put off by his bizarre nature and kicked him out of their group. Peter grew up with an innate hatred for women with a particular distaste for those who earned a living as sex workers. He would become a dangerously aggressive rapist who committed his first known offence at 15. In 1992, Peter will still have been in high school, assuming he attended and didn't drop out, but it didn't stop him from sexually assaulting one of his fellow pupils. I must clarify that, technically, he was the subject of a sexual assault investigation, and there's no confirmation that he was convicted of anything back in 1992. Based on the rest of the story, I'll leave it to you to decide whether he was innocent or guilty. Four years later, in 1996, a 19-year-old Peter was again in trouble with the law. This time, it would lead to a jail sentence. After stealing a car, Peter removed the license plates and fixed some fake ones he'd procured. He then proceeded to roam the streets of Stockton's neighbouring town of Middlesbrough in search of sex workers. Eventually, Peter spotted a 17-year-old sex worker and after a brief exchange, she entered the stolen car. Peter drove them 34 miles northwest of Middlesbrough to County Durham and pulled into an isolated area with minimal lighting. Brandishing a knife, Peter raped the 17-year-old before forcing her out of the car and driving away. Two days after that incident, he was back on the streets searching for another sex worker. A 24-year-old woman was subjected to the same sex attack that the 17-year-old had been two nights earlier. Growing in confidence, Peter cockily told the second victim about the first victim, not realising that the 24-year-old would use that information when she reported him to the police shortly after he let her out of the car and drove off. Peter was found guilty of two counts of kidnap and rape in December 1996 and sentenced to serve seven years in prison. The following year, after the introduction of the Sex Offenders Act 1997, Peter's name was added to the Sex Offenders Register. He was released from prison in January 2001 after serving just over four of the seven years. Now a free man, Peter moved from a hostel in Middlesbrough to the county of Merseyside in northwest England, where he met a young and single mother of one. Having no fixed abode, Peter worked an ultra-aggressive charm offensive with the youngster and eventually blagged his way into moving in with her. I believe her house was in Birkenhead. It didn't last long though. As soon as she discovered that Peter was a registered sex offender, she kicked him out. In doing so, she had unknowingly likely saved herself from being sexually assaulted or killed. The time Peter spent in prison didn't make him see the error of his ways, as he continued to prey on vulnerable women to satiate his sexual desires and hatred towards women. His next arrest came in early 2002, a year after his release. Cheshire police were informed by a sex worker that Peter had kidnapped and raped her before letting her go. It's unclear whether this attack was at knife point, but nevertheless Peter had developed his modus operandi. The case went no further as the sex worker dropped the charges. The ever-transient Peter moved out of Merseyside in the summer of 2002 and called the city of Bristol in southwest England his home for a brief period. We visited Bristol before in episode 7 of season 4 when we looked at the murder of Bijan Ebrahimi by Lee James. Whilst in the birthplace of renowned street artist Banksy, 
Peter Chapman was reportedly arrested for deception or fraud. I have no details of those specific offences, but it's clear that Peter had his fingers in many criminal pies. Throughout his adult life, it's alleged that Peter had two relationships with women, but both failed. It's thought that those failed attempts at romance only helped to enhance Peter's loathing of women. Using his now well-established MO, Peter kidnapped another sex worker, this time in Liverpool, before raping her at knife point. Because Peter looked dishevelled, scrawny and timid, the sex worker wasn't worried when he asked her to go inside a house with him. The story Peter used was that he needed to grab some money to pay her. Whilst inside the house, Peter brandished a knife and tied the woman up before sexually assaulting her repeatedly over the course of over 12 hours. Detective Inspector Mick Callan said of the attack, She told the police that, at first, she didn't feel threatened because of his manner. The truth is, he is anything but meek and mild. He is a devious and dangerous individual and could well be responsible for other similar offences. Despite being charged, held in custody and appearing at Liverpool Crown Court in March 2003, the charges were again dropped and Peter Chapman had once more gotten away with a brutal sex crime. If a registered sex offender changes their address, they must inform the police within three days of the move. The same applies if they wish to spend over a week away from their registered home address. In Peter Chapman's case, he purposefully kept the police in the dark regarding his address. He moved all over the UK without informing them of his whereabouts, which made his movements and therefore crimes incredibly hard to track. He was handed an eight-month jail sentence in August 2003 for failing to register his address and was handed a 15-month sentence in July 2004 for the same reason. Upon his release in May 2005, Peter moved to the town of Kirkby in Merseyside and was placed under the watch of the Nosley Sex Offender Unit. It was a disaster waiting to happen from the start. He was being monitored by a sole police constable. The female officer was responsible for monitoring 60 sex offenders on her own, despite being provided with no formal training. She was completely unprepared to take on such a monumental task, but the lack of resources in the department meant that she had no choice but to try. Each of the sex offenders under the officer's watch should have, ideally, had 24-7 eyes on them. Such was the risk they posed to the public. Free to move about as he wished due to those lack of resources, Peter went AWOL for the next 12 months. He reappeared in August 2006 to begin a 20-week night school computer course he'd enrolled on at Brookfield Comprehensive School in Kirkby. The course taught Peter computer literacy, but more importantly to him, it taught him how to create online profiles on social networking sites. To clarify, the course didn't teach him how to catfish and groom young girls, rather it taught him how to use a computer. What Peter went on to do can, in my opinion, in no way be blamed on the computer course or its tutors. However, he likely shouldn't have been enrolled on the course in the first place. Another error in the vast catalogue. The officer at Nosley went to see Peter on August 27, 2006, but no recorded visits took place after that until March 2007, when Peter's risk rating was reduced from high to medium. It would later be revealed in a 2011 report released by the Independent Police Complaints Commission, IPCC, that the risk assessment had been carried out incorrectly. Given the officer's lack of training, that doesn't come as a surprise. Another visit took place on May 15, 2007, but after that, there doesn't appear to have been much contact with the Nursley Sex Offender Unit. I suspect a combination of 
Peter's secret movements and the lack of resourcing was to blame. The end of 2007 saw Peter move in with another woman with a child from whom he kept his past a secret, this time in the northwest county of Cheshire, but she kicked him out when she eventually learned of his past. History had repeated itself once more, adding further fuel to the inferno of hate Peter held towards women. August 29, 2008 was the last time Peter Chapman was seen in person by police before his arrest over a year later. He did speak to an officer on the phone about the forklift truck driver course he was taking, but that was the last contact they had with him. August 2008 saw a crucial event happen that inadvertently became the architect of Peter Chapman's demise. He was involved in a hit-and-run incident with his car in Liverpool that led to a woman having her arm broken. His home was visited by police officers on January 6, 2009 to discuss the hit-and-run, but Peter doesn't appear to have been home. Another shocking error occurred when the sole female officer looking after the 66 offenders at Nosley was seconded to a murder investigation for six weeks. That left 60 dangerous sex offenders to essentially do as they pleased without fear of retribution. Peter used the opportunity to move 180 miles south of Kirkby to the Thames Valley in southeast England. Further visits occurred in Kirkby as the officers had no idea he'd even moved, let alone moved so far away. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. In September 2009, nine months after police officers realised Peter had fled his Kirkby home, police issued a nationwide wanted alert. He had still not been spoken to in connection with the hit and run from August 2008, so they hoped that changing his status to wanted on the police national computer would lead to his capture. Peter returned to his native Teesside in October 2009 and called the Metro Inn's Budget Hotel his home. Realistically, he was classed as having no fixed abode and often slept rough in his car. He was using a dark blue Ford Mondeo to get around, which had been purchased using the bank details of one of his ex-girlfriends. Peter had stolen a computer and was using his recently acquired knowledge to create numerous fake profiles on social networking sites. He planned to befriend as many women and girls as possible in the hope he could meet up with them and then sexually assault them. After finding some images online of a young and attractive male with his shirt off, Peter went about sending as many friend requests as he could. In total, Peter amassed just short of 3,000 friends on Facebook alone, all of whom were women and girls aged between 13 and 31. The character Peter had created was called Peter Cartwright, a student and DJ known as DJ Pete. Peter arranged to meet two girls in October 2009, both of whom were 15, but on each occasion, the meet didn't go as planned. The first girl ran away when she saw the balding Peter Chapman sitting in the driver's seat of the Ford Mondeo in the car park of a B&Q in Hartlepool. That's where she'd agreed to meet who she thought was Peter Cartwright. The second girl must have had second thoughts about the meetup as she was a no-show. Ashley Hall, a 17-year-old student from the town of Darlington in County Durham, was one of Peter Chapman's many online friends. Ashley lived with her mum, Andrea, and her three younger siblings, all of whom were girls. Andrea received help with the three youngest girls from Ashley, who will have no doubt been a natural due to the college course she was on being a childcare one. A popular girl, Ashley had many friends and chatted with them regularly online. A shining star, she was always the one who brought joy into the lives of everyone around her. 
The chief executive of Ashley's school, Eamon Farrar, referred to her as the nicest kid in the universe and said you'd have a hard time finding a nicer kid anywhere. Andrea Hall described her eldest daughter as loving, honest, caring and well-liked. She was someone that everyone loved. Ashley came across Peter Cartwright's Facebook profile in either late September or early October 2009 and the pair chatted constantly. Peter Chapman threw endless compliments Ashley's way, a tactic he hoped would end with the pair meeting. Learning from his failed attempts at meeting young girls, Peter took a different approach with Ashley and it culminated in a meetup being organised for Sunday, October 25th, 2009. Peter had two mobile phones at that point, one which he would use to pretend to be DJ Pete and the other was likely his proper phone. Think of the second phone as comparable to a burner phone for a drug dealer. Seeing as one of the previous girls had fled at the sight of Peter, he told Ashley, as DJ Pete, that it would be his dad picking her up. In a text message, Peter said, Me dad's on his way, babe. He says, excuse the state of him, lol, he's been at work. Ashley left home at 7pm after saying goodbye to her mum. She told Andrea she was staying at a friend's house and would be back the following lunchtime. Upon seeing the unfamiliar figure of Peter Chapman in the Ford Mondeo, Ashley was not concerned as she believed it was DJ Pete's dad. She texted the number back saying, he's here babe, not knowing it had been sent to a phone in the pocket of the strange man sitting next to her. Once Ashley was in the car, Peter drove them to a secluded lay-by just off the A177 where he wrapped duct tape around her head, arms and legs before raping her. He then applied duct tape to Ashley's mouth until she inevitably suffocated. Peter dumped Ashley's fully clothed body in a gully up against a fence in a field near Sedgefield. The next day, Peter had arranged to meet another young girl, but he was thankfully arrested by police before he could cause any further devastation. The interesting thing to note here is that Peter was not arrested for the murder at that point. It's a mad coincidence, but the day after he murdered Ashley Hall was the day police finally caught up with him after fleeing the hit and run in August 2008. 16 automatic number plate recognition hits were recorded on static roadside ANPR cameras between October 23rd and October 26, 2009. 12 of those hits were recorded by Cleveland police, two were recorded by Durham police and another two were recorded by North Yorkshire police. It was the Cleveland police hits that led to Peter Chapman's capture and subsequent arrest. At first, Peter didn't mention the murder of Ashley Hall. Instead, he suggested the police should crush his car, all the while thinking it would destroy any evidence that would have been recoverable from Ashley Hall having been inside it the previous evening. Whilst in a holding cell, Peter lost his nerve and told one of the officers that he had a confession to make. Footage can be found online of Peter confessing to having murdered Ashley Hall to three police officers. He said, I killed somebody last night. I need to tell somebody from CID where the body is. It hasn't been reported yet. He then led the officers to where he had dumped Ashley's body less than 24 hours earlier. Without his confession, who knows how long it would have been before Ashley's body was found. An incredibly worried Andrea Hall had been trying to gain contact with her daughter for hours. She was taken aback when a police officer answered her mobile after making over 30 call attempts. She was then informed of what had happened. Ashley's cause of death, as confirmed by a post-mortem, was due to being smothered. Even though he had confessed to having killed Ashley and led the police to where her body was, Peter then opted to plead not guilty to her murder, 
Thankfully, a full-blown trial was prevented when Peter changed his plea to guilty. On March 8, 2010, at Teesside Crown Court, Judge Peter Fox QC, the then recorder of Middlesbrough, sentenced Peter Chapman to life imprisonment for the kidnap, rape and murder of Ashley Hall. Judge Fox explained that Peter's minimum tariff would be 35 years. He went on to say, For what it is worth, I cannot foresee your release. This was an evil scheme, very carefully brought, and with considerable detail to trap your victim. Peter Chapman was sent to HMP Franklin in County Durham to serve his sentence. Upon hearing of her daughter's killer's sentencing, Andrea Hall said, Them sort of people shouldn't be allowed out into society anyway. I blame them for letting them out. They should not have been let out whatsoever, and for the people that are supposed to keep an eye on them, they should keep an eye on these sort of people. Just put the message out that, please, parents whose kids are on Facebook, please ask them to tell you who they're talking to. You just don't know who is behind that photo. A statement was released on behalf of Facebook, now Meta, in which they urged their users not to meet anyone they met online unless they 100% knew who they were. A month after being sentenced, Peter Chapman was attacked by a fellow inmate at HMP Franklin. During the assault, Peter sustained cuts to his face, but by the sounds of it, they were nothing but minor superficial injuries. Ashley Hall's granddad Mike said of the attack, At last, a piece of good news. Chapman deserves all he gets in prison. I don't think he deserves his human rights, and I think most people would agree on that. If he wants to behave like an animal, then he should be prepared to be treated like one. If I could send a bottle of whiskey to whoever did this, I would. In October 2010, Darlington Council launched a campaign about staying safe online on the back of Ashley Hall's murder. The curriculum materials and e-safety software were aimed at the borough's 14,000 teenagers to prepare and protect them from challenges they may face online. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned a 2011 report released by the Independent Police Complaints Commission, the IPCC. The results were released on August 24, 2011, and the findings were damning. In relation to Merseyside's Nosley Sex Offender Unit, IPCC Commissioner Nazim Malik said, It is evident from our investigation that this particular sex offender unit was inadequately resourced, and as a result, the officer tasked with managing sex offenders in the community had an impossible task. Chapman was not monitored effectively and managed to slip away, with terrible consequences. I read one article that suggested Andrea Hall was going to take the Merseyside, Cleveland, Durham and North Yorkshire police forces to court based on the report's findings, but I couldn't find any updates in that regard. I'm unsure if Andrea took them to court, a settlement was reached or the whole thing was dropped. If anyone knows, please get in touch. One thing I do know is we need to learn from Ashley's case to protect our children from monsters like Peter Chapman. And that was the story of British murderer Peter Chapman. Thanks again, Tracy Johnson, for suggesting that case. Let me know your thoughts about it on social media. I've got three new reviews to read out this week. Ange511C left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Absolutely love this podcast. Keeps me company on my drive into work and walking the dog. I'm also a little obsessed by murderous stories. Thanks for this interesting and fun podcast. Nikki Machiola09 left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Absolutely amazing. Great to listen to whilst doing things around the house. Keep doing what you're doing. It's brilliant. And Nicole left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Came across your podcast on Spotify. 
I love the episode that I listened to, so decided to listen all the way from your first episode to your most recent episodes whilst working. Absolutely love them. Keep up the good work. Best podcast on Spotify. Thank you, Ange, Nikki and Nicole, for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each of those on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, Mel Robinson, for supporting the show on Patreon. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You can also reach out via the website. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you will get a cheeky shout-out. You may have seen the announcement on my social media channels recently, but in case you haven't, British Murders is going to be at CrimeCon London in 2023. It takes place on June 10th and 11th, and if you use the code BRITISH, you'll get a 10% discount when you purchase your tickets. I'd love to see you there. This coming Monday, we'll see my interview with forensic psychologist Dr. Joni Johnston go live. Next Thursday will be a mid-season break slash collaboration episode with my friend Zevan Odelberg from Kinda Murdery. Zevan will tell you and me the story of Hawley Harvey Crippen. That's it for this episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio. Cheerio.